Thank you for listening to Sermons and Sounds of Plymouth. I'm Pastor David. Today we have something different. We celebrated Evolution Weekend on this Sunday, February 8th, by inviting Professor Jim Bolter to take the pulpit during our sermon time. He is a professor of chemistry and the director of the Watershed Institute at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. He has spent much of his time studying climate science and has done so as an act of his Christian faith, seeing climate change as not just a scientific issue, but a social justice issue and a faith issue. Uh, And it's a faith issue because it is affecting the world that God made and because it affects the people around us. Dr. Bolter also works with Citizens Climate Lobby, which he mentions a few times, working with politicians of all spectrums to develop a plan and a process for reining in climate change in a way that both helps the world, but is also not harmful to corporations or to the poor. So now here is his talk. Well, good morning, and uh, thank you to Reverend Huber for asking me to be here this morning. Um, this is a little outside of my normal mode of, of, of speaking, usually in front of PowerPoint slides in front of a class of college students, um, but I'm really glad to be here. I'm also glad I wasn't here last week because apparently in the gospel last week, the guest preacher in the story was Jesus, and I don't want to follow that story. So. Um, <laughs> I'm going to talk today um, about three things. Um, As a scientist, what I know. Um, As a person of faith, how I feel. Uh, And finally, why I hope. One sweltering June day in Washington, DC, a US Senate subcommittee hearing, the widely respected and distinguished planetary and climate scientist, Dr. James Hansen, made the following testimony. The Earth is warmer this year than at any time in the history of instrumental measurements. The global warming is now large enough that we can ascribe with a high degree of confidence a cause and effect relationship to the greenhouse effect. And our computer climate simulations indicate that the greenhouse effect is already large enough to begin to affect the probability of extreme events such as summer heat waves. Now, I don't think any of that comes as a surprise to you. You're all aware of what the science has been telling us about global warming. but. What may come as a surprise to you is that particular testimony took place 27 years ago. And as I'm sure as you all heard, 2014 was again the warmest year on record. Finally putting to rest all the nonsense about global warming having stopped. Since then, Dr. Hansen has testified again and again for the US Congress and also for other national legislative bodies. He has continued to prolifically publish his work mostly related to model simulations of future climates in peer-reviewed journals while holding down the position of director of NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies. This is his role as a scientist. He has also, along the same time, written a book for general audience called The Storms of My Grandchildren, highly recommended. He's lobbied presidents and members of Congress. He's spoken at enormous public rallies. And he's been arrested in front of the White House for protesting climate policies, twice. What could possibly lead such a prominent, respected scientist to enter the political arena, a decision that scientists have traditionally held that would compromise an individual scientist's guise of impartiality, would open him or her to allegations of bias? He had grown frustrated, impatient, angry even, with the lack of response or of action to combat what he knew to be an impending catastrophe. He no longer believed 
the traditional role of science merely as a discoverer of knowledge and either disinterested or unable to affect necessary societal change to better the prospects of humankind when faced with such ingrained opposition. My own story is not so dramatic. After graduating from Pacific Lutheran University in Tacoma, Washington, I worked for a time at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, a very inspiring time for me. I later went to grad school at the University of Colorado at Boulder, uh, where I had the opportunity to, 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 follow, uh, to pursue my PhD in atmospheric chemistry, and then I got to take classes from prominent atmospheric scientists and climatologists. I had the opportunity to do research and participate in field work uh, in Greenland and publish with noted paleoclimatologists. During that time in 1997, almost 10 years after Dr. Hansen's testimony, and almost 17 years ago now, I began giving talks on the topic of climate change for general audiences. First, um, at my home congregation of Atonement Lutheran Church in Boulder, Colorado. From there, my wife and I moved to St. Paul in St. Paul Lutheran Church in Oakland, California, where she pursued her Masters of Divinity and wrote to becoming a pastor. Then in Trinity here in Eau Claire, where she was an intern. Finally, Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Strum, uh, where she was pastor for five years, and now at St. John's in Eau Claire, my home congregation. Along the way, I've given many, many talks for community groups, public forums, and even once a business event. I was asked by Excel Energy to come and speak to some of their customers. That was very exciting. And also, of course, I've taught this in many of my classes at UW-Eau Claire. In the intervening time, Dr. Hansen's predictions made back in 1988 have proved to be largely true based on climate model, models at the time, his predictions were based on climate models rather, that would now be considered rudimentary in comparison to today's, with knowledge, frankly, that was far less complete than we have today. In other words, our ability to make quantitative predictions of future climate conditions are now far more precise. They're more certain and they're increasingly stark. And our general approach has leapt forward in that time with massive computational resources made available for ultra-high spatial resolution models that can now predict regional climate trends. Likewise, these improved predictions have been supported by the drumbeat of new observations. With nearly three decades now of unrelenting global decadal warming, ocean acidification, changing growing seasons and growing zones, shifting animal migration dates, extreme weather events such as heat waves, intensified storms, and other precipitation events, droughts and associated wildfires, floods and accompanying loss of life and property, along with some very high-profile climate-influenced weather disasters, including Typhoon Haiyan, extratropical superstorm Sandy, and hurricanes Katrina and Rita, which unimaginably were 10 years ago this year. As I continued giving these talks and reporting all of this to mostly Lutheran faith communities, I began to grow discouraged. I was communicating the scientific basis of climate change, a fascinating topic and actually a great story that reaches back to the mid-1800s, and sharing some of my own experiences at Boulder and in Greenland, illuminating connections with other branches of science and with people's experience. Increasingly, as the preponderance of evidence grew, and grew, and as the data became more and more clear, I reported the observations we were making and indicated that climate change was already occurring, was not merely a distant threat. Finally, I was clearly attributing a changing climate to atmospheric alterations that were a result of human activity, primarily the burning of fossil fuels, but also of deforestation, biomass burning. 
And I made increasingly dire warnings for the future that threatened our ecosystems, our food systems, our national security, our global economic systems, and so forth. Why was I frustrated? Well, largely the audiences I spoke to were self-selecting. For the most part, um, these were people that knew and were aware and concerned of the issue. But my presentations, frankly, to be honest, weren't helpful to them. Because of the nature of the presentations and the nature of the information I was imparting, which was perfectly legitimate from a scientific standpoint, I think it resulted in disempowerment, increasing fear and worry, and not providing meaningful solutions. Sure, at the end of the talks, I would tell them about changing light bulbs and maybe driving you know, cars with better gas mileage. And you know, measures in your home, buying Energy Star appliances and, and better insulating your home, programmable thermostats, things that everyone can do and should do and, and can do. Most importantly, I told them to vote with climate as their primary issue. But somehow, I think we all knew, both them and myself, that this didn't feel like enough to reach this enormous issue, certainly not in time. Like James Hansen, I was learning that communicating the science alone was not enough. Over more than 10, 10 years of this, I was growing just as discouraged and frustrated, perhaps, as my audiences. I felt that the wrong people were hearing my message, and they were either unwilling or unable to do anything about it. And in my classes where I taught this, I feel that my students were increasing in knowledge and understanding, but also in hopelessness and fear. Why do I fear? Why do they fear? I think it's important to note that none of these feelings of helplessness and, and frustration are part of the process of doing science. On the contrary, as a scientist, I should have been excited and stimulated by the advance of knowledge, our improving ability to understand, predict, global climates. What's more, these predictions were supported by the observations. We were getting it right. The science was succeeding. And when we didn't, uh, for example, um, the last five or 10 years, the precipitous ice loss in Greenland that really surprised even uh, glacial climatologists, or for that matter, our inability to accurately predict El Nino and La Nina events as well as we would like. Whenever we missed the mark, it was an opportunity to improve the quality of the science. These are exciting and heady times for science. But as a human being, a lover of the natural world, as the uncle of four wonderful nieces and nephews, age seven through 11, and as a Christian, I instead felt urgency, dread, frustration, anger. Set against the expectations of the traditional role of science as steadfastly independent of policymaking was this new sense of motivation that I must take a new form of action out of moral obligation. I think these are strong words moral obligation. What led me to these? Well, I believe it was my Christian identity, my upbringing, my formation, and the continued evolution of my faith. See, I got the word in there. <laughs> evolution. Yes. I still remember a paper I wrote as an undergraduate at PLU, in which I argued passionately about the role of environmentalism in Christian theology. Um, specifically, I referred to the passage from Genesis. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and the cattle and the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Dominion, that word has been used a lot against the environmental movement. Then I went on to contrast this with statements from the New Testament epistles, including Corinthians, Ephesians, and Hebrews, that referred to God placing all things in, subject, in subjection under or under the feet of Christ as head of the church. And 
in my brain, I compared these two terms. I said, oh, dominion, subjection. These are two sides of the same coin, I realized. And if Christ's relationship to the church, which had been put under subjection under his feet, was to sacrifice himself and die for the church, then what was our responsibility for creation? More recently, just a few weeks ago, my wife Christine Emerson gave a sermon at St. John's comparing the structure of the Lord's Prayer to that of the great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. These two clauses, hearing them, as it were, as I struggled and pondered with Reverend Huber's invitation for me to come to speak to you today, helped me to articulate the basis of that moral obligation that I felt as a commandment from God. Since we are to love God the Creator, is it not required of us that we also care for the condition of this creation? I think of ocean warming and acidification leading to collapse of coral reef communities, loss of species diversity in critical habitats, destruction of landscapes, vistas, and ecosystems for mineral extraction and to feed our energy addiction, hydrofracturing, deep ocean drilling, mountaintop removal, coal mining, strip mining, and the wholesale of the northern temperate rainforests of Alberta, some of the greatest on the planet, for the extraction of a vast but marginal supply of dirty oil. Think of pollutants including trace quantities of endocrine disruptors, ubiquitous PCBs, TCDDs, PBDEs, it's all part of a complex soup of synthetic acronyms, and microscopic bits of plastic suspended in oceanic gyres like the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. How did these examples convey anything other than suffering? I'm reminded of texts like Jeremiah 12:4. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither for the wickedness of those who live in it? The animals and the birds are swept away. Or in Isaiah 24, verses 4 through 5, we read, The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The heavens languish together with the earth. The earth lies polluted under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed laws violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. As for our neighbor, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Christ makes it abundantly clear that neighbor is not limited to those related to us, those similar to us, or even those living near us. In fact, they may not have been born yet. Environmental activist, poet, essayist, and farmer Wendell Berry is sometimes cited as the most likely source for the poignant truism the world is not inherited from our ancestors, but rather borrowed from our descendants. Similarly, and perhaps more profoundly, is the concept that originates with the great law of the Iroquois nation. In every deliberation, we must consider the impact on the seventh generation. So what is our impact on our neighbors? President Obama's science advisor, Dr. John Holdren, speaking in 2010 of climate change says, we have only three options. One is mitigation, the steps we take to reduce the pace and magnitude of the changes in climate that our activities cause. The second is adaptation, the measures we take to reduce the harm that results from climate change that we do not avoid. And the third option is suffering. It is really that simple. Mitigation, adaptation, and suffering. The question, the issue that's up for grabs is what the mix is going forward. Is it going to be among mitigation, sorry, mix going forward is going to be among mitigation, adaptation, and suffering. If our aim is to minimize suffering as it should be, as it must be, we're going to have to maximize both mitigation and adaptation. 
Well, you see, the problem is that both mitigation, the limiting of our net carbon emissions to the atmosphere, and adaptation, what we do to cope with the resulting changes and those already underway, are expensive and they require that people change. In the developed world particularly, our lifestyles, our expectations, and our attitudes. And people don't like change, right? Take it from the husband of a Lutheran pastor. Lutherans do not like change. I can't speak to... However, I would note that the expenses that would be incurred by mitigation and adaptation now, while substantial, are nothing compared to the cost of waiting to act. I was th considering this, actually. If I think about climate models that extend throughout the rest of the century, I've yet to see a climate model that doesn't entail change. At some point, all of the emission models bend over. That is, we eventually stop emitting CO2. I think the assumption is that eventually it gets so bad that we eventually will change our ways. What's interesting to me is the question really then is not of do we change, the question is when do we change? And sooner is always cheaper than later. And also the lifestyle changes that lead, that would be required to mitigate climate change, you know what? They often lead to greater happiness, more fulfillment, better health as we turn from rampant consumerism and toward more active lifestyles and improved eating practices. That's not so bad for us. But what about our neighbors? There is a strong issue of social justice here. Those in the developed world, by no virtue of our own, but merely by the happy accident of our birth, have benefited tremendously from abundant, cheap, and easy fossil fuel energy. This has enhanced our standard of living far beyond what people could have ever dreamed of only a handful of generations ago. We have done it by means of extracting fossil fuels, strip mining, and clearing vast forests and prairies. Meanwhile, those in the developing world have made minimal contribution to the changing climate, and those yet born can't be said to have made any contribution. They are not in a position to mitigate, unless it's by denying them the opportunity to do those things that we have done that have improved our lives so much. But the good news is, when it comes to mitigation in the developed world, guess what? We have a tremendous opportunity because we can make the greatest impact. Now, when it comes to international negotiations in the United Nations, uh, the UNFCCC, important talks coming up in Paris in 2015, maybe you've heard about them. The primary point of contention that prevent the creation, adoption, and implementation of international climate laws is this fact, the sum that some have benefited and others will not have the opportunity to similarly benefit. Well, what about adaptation? Well, it's a well-established principle that in climate risk is greatest at the intersection of what we call impacts, that is the effects of climate, vulnerability, and exposure. The developing world, the have-nots of the planet, have very little exposure, that is to say, they don't have much infrastructure in the game, but they have a high degree of vulnerability and that they don't have the resources to engage in adaptation. For example, Bangladesh given a couple meters of sea level rise, you start to lose as much as 30% of, of, of the land mass to ocean encroachment. But they don't have the massive infrastructure built up along the coast that would prevent them from relocating. On the other hand, the developed world, the haves, we have a high level of what's called exposure. Think of Florida, massive cities, huge investments in infrastructure, which are all bat deeply threatened by, the, by sea level rise. Uh, but we also have massive resources to adapt, to move, to invest elsewhere. 
The principle here is that those the least impact on the climate will experience the, the impacts of climate change most painfully and profoundly, especially future generations of the world. This is an issue of social justice. However, we can be motivated to also to act out of enlightened self-interest. And this is, a, I think, an, an, a beginning to be an emerging realization. We have an incentive to mitigate simply because we have the most to lose financially. Nonetheless, this is not what motivates me. What motivates me to speak is this moral obligation I've spoke for. For those who have no voice and who are not empowered to act, the impoverished, the powerless, the unborn, and the planet. And I'm not alone. I recently read a powerful blog called, Is This How You Feel? And in it, the moderator asks prominent influential PhD climate scientists to write letters answering this question about climate change on a personal level. Emotions conveyed include their fears, anger, frustration, sadness, bewilderment, despair, and surprisingly often, hope. Hope. This is where we have to end, right? Because I would be doing exactly what I've said the first 10, 17 years is like if I, if I ended here. So how did I find hope? Perhaps you find, feel similarly about climate change. Emotions of frustration, bewilderment, anger, despair, powerlessness, leading to apathy. You know, I can't tell each and every one of you where to find hope. I can, however, tell you specifically what gives me hope. And it may surprise you. Because against all odds, it's our political system. Let me quote J Dr. James Hansen again. If you want to join the fight to save the planet, to save creation for your grandchildren, there is no more effective step that you could take than becoming an active member of this group. Intrigued? I was. I saw this on a TED Talk. If you're a big fan of TED Talks, and I'm a huge fan of TED Talks, I use them in my classes. I, I, I get stuck at 2 o'clock in the morning watching them, almost like a junkie. Um, if you read TED Talks, I saw this, and I was so intrigued, I had, I had to find out what it was he was talking about. And what he's talking about is a group that I'm now a member of called Citizens Climate Lobby. Their mission is to create the political will for a livable world by empowering individuals to experience breakthroughs in exercising their political and personal power. There's a lot of very positive words there. A livable world, political will, empowerment personally and politically. They're a very directed organization that I've grown to respect a lot. Partially, one reason I respect them so much is they are sort of militantly nonpartisan. They came to the very clear realization that for any climate legislation to matter, to actually happen in this country, it had to originate from the right. It had to originate from the right. It wasn't enough to be supported from the right. It needed to come from the right. And they realized that conservative has in its roots conservation. We think of Teddy Roosevelt. They thought, they thought, wow, are there ways that we could construe public policy that would be consistent with conservative ideologies and yet would be effective? And there's the key, actually. Their political solution has to be politically feasible. It has to be socially equitable. And it needs to be environmentally effective. 
all those three things. I won't spend time on this, but I'd be happy to talk to you about it afterwards. That idea is simple, and it's necessarily simple because we don't have time for complex solutions. And it's this simple. It's the placing of a carbon tax on any fossil fuel at the point at which it enters our economy. So whether it's pulled from the ground or it's imported from another country. It places a constantly rising tax on that carbon. In year one, it's 10 or $15 per ton of CO2 emitted. In year two, it's 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, on, until we simply stop burning fossil fuels. One of the important aspects of it is it gives a price signal to the business community, to the powers and utility communities, and to the individuals saying, if we go in this direction, the price will get so expensive that you can no longer afford to, to, to spend it. And so start making changes now rather than later. And it will be, be financially um, prudent for you to do so. It encourages investment in renewable energy. What's the problem with that? The problem is clear. The price of energy is the price of everything. If we impose such a carbon tax, everyone would be hurt, but the poor would be hurt the most because everyone needs energy to live. We need gas to get to our jobs. We need heat, particularly in this part of the world, to power our houses. So what's unique about this is that it's what we call revenue neutral. This is a solution in which all of the proceeds, all of them, none are kept by the government. They are all returned to households, which enable them to offset the increased costs of everything. So there are some other details that I won't go into, but this is the key. It's supportable, well, let me say, put it this way. Democrats are often opposed to it because they see that massive revenue stream and they think of all the good things that could be done with it. Republicans are against it because it has the word tax in it. So we challenge both equally. People on the left, you're not allowed to touch it. It all must return to households. People on the right, deal with the word. This is consistent with your political ideologies and belief systems, and it pulls us out of the climate, model, the climate crisis. Just last year, our group commissioned some economic studies by a very well-known and, and prestigious uh, economic modeling group. You know what they showed? They showed an increase in regional and national gross domestic product. It helped our economy. It didn't hurt our economy. They showed that the decrease in CO2 emissions was faster than any cap and trade or um, uh, what's called command and control, which is just placing limits on carbon emissions, any other policy yet proposed. This gives me hope because I think this is an issue by which we can actively work with both sides of the aisle to make a change. And why am I hopeful? Because in 2014, we had 228 chapters of citizens' climate lobby across the country. The goal is one in every legislative district. Just in January alone, we added 14 new chapters. That's from 42 back in 2011. Every summer, we travel to Washington, D.C., and we meet with legislators from across the political spectrum. We build relationships with them. We don't criticize them, we don't attack them, we build relationships with them in a very Christian sort of way, regardless of their political stance. In, tw in 2010, we had 106 lobby meetings. In 2014, we had a, uh, we had a total of 1,086 lo lobby meetings across the year, with 515 of those coming in the period of two days in Washington, D.C. last June, and I was honored to take a part of that. 515 lobby meetings 
out of 535 total representatives. We're making an impact. Last year alone, we had over 2,500 letters to the editor published around the country and over almost 7,000 handwritten letters to Congress. We are moving the needle um, in a very exciting way. And although it wasn't our intention, now the group is expanding across the globe and we have uh, chapters in 26 other nations as, as this is growing beyond our wildest dreams. So I have hope. I have hope that we can come together on an issue of this magnitude if we think of solutions which are non-traditional, that think outside of the box a little bit. I want to close with a quote by James Balog. Did anyone see the movie Chasing Ice? Fantastic documentary where he goes around the world and documents the loss of ice sheets around the world, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere. He says at the end of that documentary, I've come to the conclusion that we don't have a problem of economics, technology, and public policy. We have a problem of perception. These are serious enough issues, but I'm certain that we can actually deal with them. But what we have is a perception problem because not enough people really get it yet. We are nearly at the edge of a crisis, but I believe that we have an opportunity right now to face the greatest challenge of our generation, in fact, of our century. This is where I find hope. I started this with fascination about the climate um, system and with growing fear and concern motivated by a sense of obligation, of moral obligation. And now I feel I have hope that we can actually change this thing uh, for the benefit, not just in this country, but around the world. Let it be so. And that is the good news for this day and for all days. Thank you again for listening to the Sermons and Sounds of Plymouth podcast. If you are in the Eau Claire area, we especially invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. And I invite you also to check out our website at pcucc.com for upcoming events and special worship services. From Plymouth United Church of Christ, Eau Claire, Wisconsin, this is Pastor David. Thank you for spending this time with us. May God bless you.